Welcome to the Danny Picard Show, Tuesday, December 8th, 2015. As always, broadcasting from the Beantown Athletic Studio in Dorchester, Massachusetts. Let Beantown Athletics take care of all your holiday shopping with their customized screen printing and on-the-spot embroidery. Give them a call today at 617-282-4181. That's 617-282-4181. Or check out their brand new website, BeantownAthletics.com. That's BeantownAthletics.com. Beantown Athletics, also home of the very best skate shopping in New England. So grab your skates, swing by the shop on Granite Ave in Dorchester. There is plenty of parking out back, and make sure you tell them I sent you. So week number 13 is officially in the books as last night on Monday Night Football, the Dallas Cowboys went into D.C. and they beat the Redskins 19-16. to This was an awful game until the last two minutes of the fourth quarter, really. And to be honest, I didn't, I wasn't fully invested in Redskins-Cowboys last night. So, because we had the Bruins playing at home against the Nashville Predators. The Bruins lose last night in that one. Um, We had the Celtics in New Orleans to take on the Pelicans. Celtics win that game. Nice little night for James Young. Not, you know, people are making it out to be, I think, a little bit more than what they should. But it's good to see the kid uh, not look completely lost on the court. But the Celtics win last night. So, I was watching the Celtics. I was watching the Bruins, and I'm, of course, throughout it all, I'm paying attention to everything that's going on down in Nashville at the winter meetings for Major League Baseball, and there are some things that happened yesterday, really moments after I released yesterday's podcast. As you know, I give you a podcast every weekday. You can get it at dannypicard.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes, on the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app, Anywhere, really, you can get podcasts. And, you know, I have people that come to me that don't have an iPhone, and they say, well, how do I get the show? Well, first of all, and I don't mean to knock your intelligence. That's not what I'm trying to do, but there's going to be a way that you could, with your whatever you have, a Droid or a Samsung, like, you know you can get podcasts on your phone, right? Just because you don't have iTunes. There's got to be a way for you to search. I don't have a Droid. I don't have a Samsung. So I don't think I can get on your phone for you. And, and download this show, but there's a way to do it. I mean, it's 2015, and sometimes I get the questions about, you know, where can I get it if I have this, I have that. I mean, I, look, I don't have a Droid or a Samsung, so I'm not necessarily hip to the game as to what actual apps you currently have on your phone, because you can have all different ones, but what I do know is the apps that I continuously promote that also, you know, are not iTunes apps, which are... Uh, the Stitcher app, or the TuneIn app. You can get those apps on any phone. So get those apps, search the Danny Picard Show, and that's the way you can get it. Again, I mean, I I can't get on your phone and do it for you. If I could, then, you know, I would tell you to come by Beantown Athletics and knock on the window while I'm recording and bring your phone in, and I'll do it during the fucking show. I will. I'll subscribe to whatever. So, you, But you got to be able to do this. I, but it's not brain surgery. So... If you have questions about that, yes, you can get this show even if you don't have an iPhone. Wherever podcasts are available, or at least most places, but the places that I promote, the other applications, Stitcher, TuneIn, download those apps. When you get into those, just search my name 
or search The Danny Picard Show, and you should be able to get every show free. That's how you get it. But when I released yesterday's show, there were some things that were going on in the baseball world that really moments after I released yesterday's podcast, some things changed and also some moves were made. So I'll get to those in just a few minutes. But first, let's wrap up Week 13 in the NFL because as I mentioned last night, the Cowboys went into Washington, they went into D.C., and they beat the Redskins 19-16. to As I told you, I was not fully invested in this game, but I did watch some pots, and I especially watched the end. But really, even if you didn't watch this whole game, you didn't need to. All you needed to do was watch the last two minutes. Really, maybe the last four minutes, because you got a couple, uh, also a couple field goals there late. You got a Cowboys field goal with 422 remaining in the game that tied the game at nine. And then you got one of the worst fumbles that you will ever see from Deshaun Jackson. I mean, as bad, as bad a fumble as you're going to see. The Cowboys punted with a minute 47 left in the game. A tie game. The Cowboys punt. All right. It's down to the Washington 16-yard line, if you want to be specific to where it was at. And Deshaun Jackson decides to run back inside his own five because up the right sideline, there was nothing there for him. All the Redskins are asking from Deshaun Jackson at that point in time, with a minute 47 left on the clock, in your own building, in a tie game, in which you're the first-place team in a division, playing against another divisional team. All they are asking Deshaun Jackson to do there is either run the ball out of bounds or get tackled. Whether it was for a gain of one, two yards, or even a lot, they would have taken a loss of five But he ran all the way back inside his five-yard line, and when he tried to be fancy and he tried to get crazy, well, what serves him right is that he loses the football and he fumbles and the Cowboys recover. And that's exactly what happened. The Cowboys recovered at the Redskins' 15-yard line as the ball came out of his hand and bounced up a little bit, a couple yards, and now they reviewed it. And look, the rule, the way it stands... That the the wrist is part of the hand and that the hand comes down. Deshaun Jackson's hand came down. His hand was under the ball and the ball got loose. Look, I don't want... I actually want that to be no fumble. Like, I don't want that to be a turnover. If the ball hits the ground, if your hand hits the ground and the ball's in it, I don't think that should be a fumble. But based on the rule, that's, that's the right call. It is a fumble and it goes to Dallas. But really... What you have to criticize outside of the rule is the stupidity from Deshaun Jackson. The fact that you would even keep that play alive long enough to hold that thing like a loaf of bread to give the Cowboys a chance to strip that ball from you. You get that thing down the right, down your right sideline at your own 15, 16-yard line, run it up to the 20, get out of bounds, go down. Keep possession of the ball with under two minutes left. You can drive it downfield, and you put your team in position to kick a game-winning field goal. That's what you do. Instead, Deshaun Jackson gets crazy, and what does he do? Serves him right. He loses the football. Dallas takes over at the Washington 15. You get one play, um, and for a nine-yard gain, right, from McFadden, and he gets out of bounds, and McFadden had had a weird night. He had a weird night. He already had fumbled twice in this ballgame. He lost two fumbles, 
you know, they bring him back in late for this final possession, uh, or what you think was going to be a final possession, and you get a nice run to the left sideline, right? Nine-yard gain, but he got out of bounds. And and you can criticize him for that. I'm going to criticize McFadden for getting out of bounds more so than I am for McFadden to actually run into the end zone because that's what he did. He ran into the end zone on second and one from the six-yard line on a six-yard run, and it counted as a touchdown, but there was still a minute 14 left on the clock. And I know a lot of people were maybe crushing him for getting into the end zone when they're saying, all all you need is a field goal, just run the clock out, kick the game-winning field goal. It's easier said than done, in, in my opinion. And also, in my opinion, whenever you get into telling a player to not score, when he has the ability to do so, you're running down a dangerous road there because we've seen it multiple times with different teams this season, really, right? I mean, you go to the, even, you know, it happened, the Cowboys actually were the team that were on the winning end of that of one of these earlier in the season. I think the first week, the Giants-Cowboys, right? Remember Eli Manning, he handed it off to Jennings and he told Jennings, don't score? And he didn't score, and and what happened? They they lost the game because of that. They lose the game because of that. And if you're the Cowboys, you remember that. I don't think that you don't get in the end zone. I actually I'm okay with scoring in that situation. I'm if you have a chance to put it in the end zone, then you do it. That, that's the way. That's the way I look at it. it. It's easier said than done to sit there and go, oh, make sure you get down. Or make sure you don't score if you have a hole up the middle. Don't get into the end zone. Go down right before the end zone. I just, look, if the points are there to take, take the points. Uh, that's, that's just my theory. That's just what I believe in. And that's what McFadden did. And that's what the Cowboys did. So the Cowboys run it up the middle. McFadden scores. They get the touchdown. Extra point is good. They have a 16-9 lead with a minute 14 remaining. The Redskins get the ball back. And, you know, if you're a Redskin fan, you're saying to yourself, I can't believe this happened. I can't believe Deshaun Jackson fumbled. We should have had the ball the final two minutes, drove it downfield, kick a game-winning field goal. Instead, we lose the football, and we now trail by seven with a minute 14 left. Okay? Minute 14 left. Well, the Redskins get the ball, and they drive it downfield. And they go deep. On first and 10 from the Cowboys' 28-yard line with 44 seconds left to, guess who? Deshaun Jackson. That's right, to Deshaun Jackson. Down the right sideline, gets two, gets three feet in, and it was just, it was Deshaun Jackson making up for his just brutal, brutal decision to, to run it back inside his own five and then lose the football the possession before. So, at that point, you're looking at that going, all right, now you got a tie game. 16-16, right? Game is tied, 16-16. And you're wondering, how could Dallas possibly drive the ball downfield? This thing must be going to overtime, right? Well, not so fast. Because as much as Deshaun Jackson saved his own ass and kind of saved his team's ass because he, even though he was the one to blame, he got them back into a tie game at the end. And they're giving the ball to Dallas with 44 seconds left. Guess what happens? The Washington Redskins couldn't prevent a big play 
on the ensuing kick. They couldn't. The Cowboys get it. They run it. A 46-yard gain. A 46-yard gain. Took it out of his own end zone down to the 44, to his own 44. And the Cowboys have great field position. All they need is a couple plays, and they set themselves up for a game-winning field goal. So this, the Washington Redskins special teams, you could say, maybe uh, cost them that game last night when it was all said and done. But, I mean, we got no touchdowns until the final two minutes. 17 total points in the final two minutes. In the final minute, 44. Again, I had no problem with McFadden scoring after the Deshaun Jackson fumble. Deshaun Jackson made up for that fumble by catching a touchdown pass. And then Washington Redskins special teams, they allow a big play on a 46-yard kickoff return with 40 seconds left. Dallas then moves the ball only 20 yards and kicks a game-winning 54-yard field goal. And the Cowboys win it 19-16. to And it keeps the Cowboys alive in the NFC East. Well, kind of. Kind of. Keeps them alive in the NFC East. What a brutal division. A brutal division. The Redskins, they remain in first place at 5-7 and because they own the tiebreaker. The Eagles are in second place at 5-7. and seven. The Giants in third place at 5-7. and seven. The Cowboys in last place at 4-8. and eight. But again, when you're 4-8 and eight and the division leader only has five wins and you end up just beating the division winner, you are still alive, especially given the fact that the Redskins and the Cowboys play each other one more time and it's going to be in Dallas in the final week of the regular season, a 1 o'clock start on January 3rd, week 17. So if you're Dallas and you can sort of keep up with the Redskins and and you can maybe hope that the Eagles and the Giants kind of, you know, beat themselves up a little bit, then you got a shot if you're Dallas. But because they don't have Romo, I'm not giving them much of a shot. But not just that, I look at the schedules in this NFC East, and I look at the Redskins' schedule, and it is the easiest schedule. It is. They go to Chicago, a team that is now, I think, down and out after losing to San Francisco last week. The Bears were alive, but you can't lose to San Francisco and expect me to consider you still alive now in the playoff race. So they go to Chicago. That's not an impossible place for the Redskins to be able to win. They come home against Buffalo. Uh, then they go to Philly, and they go to Dallas. You know, I, I, I don't look at that schedule and think that's an impossible schedule for the Redskins. I look at the Giants' schedule. I see at Miami. Then they play the Carolina Panthers. Then they play the Minnesota Vikings before finishing out the season against the Eagles. So to have Carolina and Minnesota on your schedule if you're the Giants, that's pretty difficult compared to what some of the other teams in the division have in the NFC East. And the Eagles... They have Buffalo on their schedule, but they have the Arizona Cardinals. And again, they play Washington and then the Giants. So Philly, because they have Arizona, see, the one thing the Redskins don't have on their schedule is that game against that powerhouse team. The Giants have it against two, two of those powerhouse teams, the Panthers and the Vikings. Uh, and yes, I am calling the Vikings a powerhouse team, even though they just got whooped by Seattle. I, the Vikings are for real this year. I think their strategy, by only having Adrian Peterson run the football eight times against the Seahawks, I thought it was an awful strategy. And while I don't like Peterson calling out his coach publicly to the media, he is right. You do that shit internally, but the sentiment, the idea, 
that that was a poorly coached game because you only gave Peterson the ball eight times, handed it off to him eight times. That's a bad coaching. That that's a bad coached game, a poorly coached game. So I agree with with uh, the sentiment there that that Peterson has. I just don't agree with how he went about uh, telling people that. I mean, we all pretty much know that. It's it's pretty obvious for us to see that as a game plan when you only give the ball to Adrian Peterson. When you only let him run the football eight times, that's a poorly coached game. But I still consider the Vikings a powerhouse. And as I mentioned, Philly has Arizona on their schedule. The Cowboys, uh, they have Green Bay. And while the Packers are struggling right now, I still think that Dallas is going to lose in Green Bay on Sunday at 425. They will. And then Dallas plays the Jets they play the Bills, and then they play the Redskins. So out of these four teams in this division, this shit division in which the division leader is still the Redskins with five wins, a 5-7 and seven record, even after just losing on Monday Night Football in Week 13 at home to the last-place Cowboys, who are only one game out of the division with four wins, um, I still think out of all these teams in this division, the Redskins will have the easiest road to the playoffs because of their schedule. So we'll see how it plays out. But uh, that's what happened last night on Monday Night Football. And, you know, I, I got to mention this one thing as I'm watching the post game last night. First and foremost, can we get the ESPN Monday Night Football post game crew some fucking cheers? Can we get them some seats? Like, I, th- they're standing around in the middle of the field. It's just, and I, I like Steve Levy. I do. I mean, he's a hockey guy, too. Uh, but I kind of feel bad for him because it's just, you know, he's around, he's around that crew, and it's like Steve Young starts throwing out things, and Steve Levy says, wait a minute, is that true? This is during the broadcast, and Steve Young's like, well, I actually, I don't know if that's true. It's like, wait, so why would you say it? You can't just start saying shit that's not true. That's the problem with ESPN these days. So I feel bad for Steve Levy, but maybe if they had some fucking seats, they wouldn't be acting so stupid, these other guys. I mean, can you sit down? What are you trying to prove? I get it. You're on a football field, the gridiron. You know, you're out there in the cold. We got, you got your winter coats on. I understand that. Get them some fucking seats. Holy shit. They're standing around. I don't get it. But while they're standing around last night, the ESPN postgame crew on Monday Night Football... They act like we've never seen a division as bad as the NFC East. Like, they act like this is the first time this has ever happened. While I'm sitting there going, guys, last year, just last year, the Carolina Panthers won the NFC South with only seven wins. I got news for you. The team that wins the NFC East is probably going to have seven wins, right? Right? You would think so. It was just... It would defy logic if they didn't. I just think the math proves the win is going to have at least seven wins. So it's not like it's nothing we've ever seen before. We saw it last year in the NFC South. Holy shit. It's like you t- they're making this thing sound, this division. They're like, wow, this, the winner of this division is going to be, we get it. It's terrible. But you can, you can acknowledge that it's terrible without trying to act like it's the first time this has ever happened. I'm going, wait. You know, they're shocked about this. I'm not. I'm not shocked about it. I mean, look at the teams. Have you watched them play? 
what you should be shocked with is that the Eagles are still alive in the race because they beat the Patriots last week. That's the shocking thing. They beat the Patriots. But, uh, and by the way, there is the Flakegate news, right? Brady's camp has, they filed something after now with the NFL, you know, the NFL's appeal of, of Richard Berman's decision. I, I'm not going to get into the Flakegate. I just can't do it. I'm going to let this season play out, okay? When we get to the Deflategate stuff after the Super Bowl in late February, early March, right? What is it going to be? The first week of March? That hearing? The NFL's appeal? We'll talk about it then. I, I, I'm not going to sit here and get into, you know, things that have been filed and appeals. And I'm, I'm, I'm focused on football. I am. And uh, I'm focused on the playoff race right now. And if you're focusing on that like I am, well, even after the Washington Redskins lose last night on Monday Night Football, they are still in first place in that division. And if the playoffs began today, the Redskins would still be the four seed and they would be hosting the Minnesota Vikings, the five seed in the wild card round. So, uh, with that said, I think we can move on from the NFL because every Wednesday I will turn the page and preview the upcoming week in the National Football League. Next week is week 14. I'll do that tomorrow as I do every Wednesday. The reason I didn't do it last Wednesday and I did it on Thursday of last week was because we had some major news with the David Price uh, signing with the Boston Red Sox. When David Price signs with the Red Sox for that type of money and that type of deal, and he's that big of a name, and it's that big of a need for this Red Sox team, it's got to be the top story, and we spent an entire show on that last Wednesday, and that's why I did my NFL Weekly Preview on Thursday. So we'll get back to the regular schedule. Tomorrow, Wednesday, I will preview all of Week 14 in the N. FL. Uh, before I get to some baseball, just a couple things I didn't get to yesterday, and it's college football related. The final college football playoff rankings. Say that ten times fast. We, we, you know, they, we've trying to. Can we even call it the the CFP? Are we there yet? I'm not there yet. The CFP, the college football playoff. The CFP, nah. You know, we got bowl games, and the semifinals they are bowl games. The national championship is just the national championship, but you got four teams in the college football playoff. I don't know. I just there's got to be a different name for it. Can we come up with something? Maybe the bowl playoffs, the playoff bowls. How about the playoff bowls? Can we do that? All right, the playoff bowls. Here's what we got for the playoff bowl rankings. The final rankings: Clemson number one, as they were. Alabama number two. Oklahoma moves down and gets knocked down from three to four because Michigan State beat Iowa. Michigan State beat Iowa, so Michigan State shoots up to number three. Iowa is now out after losing to Michigan State, so the top four teams in the playoff bowl system, I don't, I can't come up with a fucking name to it. Either way, you know what I'm talking about. The college football playoff. I just hate saying that. It just doesn't sound right. It doesn't roll off the tongue, the college football playoff. It doesn't roll off the tongue. You need something better. The playoff bowls. So we'll go with that. Uh, The semifinals. New Year's Eve. All right? They'll be on New Year's Eve. And the first game will be, though we don't actually know the times, but here's how it's going to play out. The Capital One Orange Bowl is 
going to be, as I mentioned, New Year's Eve. Number one, Clemson will take on number four, Oklahoma. And then we have the Goodyear Cotton Bowl. Number two, Alabama against number three, Michigan State. The first game will be at four. The second game will be at eight. And then the national championship will be Monday, January 11th in Arizona. Uh, But we'll still have this wait. You know, you got to wait a couple weeks for these teams to even get going again. That's why I think when you get to eventually an eight-team playoff, an eight-team playoff bowl, (laughs) you know, when you get eight teams, all of a sudden one plays eight, two, right, two plays seven, three plays six, four plays five, you get four semifinal games, then you get a final four, then you get the championship, you sort of, you get that extra week, right? So you, you think of it, well, it'd be starting a week early. You wouldn't get as many weeks off heading in uh, to the playoffs. That's really what I want to see, and I think that's eventually what we're going to see. We're going to see more teams added because you look at some of the teams that are on the outside looking in when you check out the final rankings. I mean, Iowa right there, they had a great season, but they get that one loss, and all of a sudden they find themselves in the fifth spot, and they don't have a shot at a national title. Uh, Ohio State at 11-1. and They are the seventh seed. You know, I, I, you can look at North Carolina. They had to play Clemson their final game. It was only their second loss, but, that, but that's a tough loss. You lose to number one. All right, now you're out. I mean, I think you can make a case here to add a couple more teams to this tournament, even if you wanted to start by adding six and maybe giving the first two teams a first-round bye. I, you know, I, we're going to get to that at some point. And I hope we do, because that'll mean, you know, you'll have to wait one less week to get to a playoff bowl. That's what I'm, that's what I'm going to call it, a playoff bowl. That's what I am sticking to. So there's your college football update. I'm not, I told you, I'm not the biggest college football guy in the world, but I do pay attention to the beginning of the season, and I pay attention to the end. In the middle, you know, all of a sudden you get NFL starting, then you get NHL, then you get NBA, and you got the playoff baseball, the World Series. Honestly, it's tough to pay attention, in my opinion, especially when you're a playoff baseball guy like I am. Like, I'm watching, all, even if the Red Sox aren't in it, I'm all in on postseason baseball. It's tough to also watch college football. So, but you get into it at the end. How can you not, especially with the playoff bowl system that they currently have? But, uh, you know, I mentioned Major League Baseball, and I know it's not postseason baseball, but it is the offseason, and you can make the case that the offseason of Major League Baseball is just as exciting as the postseason. And right now, the winter meetings are underway in Nashville. What's it, day number three? I believe they began Sunday. They will end on Thursday. And there is news, because yesterday on this podcast, I told you that Araldis Chapman was traded to the Dodgers for two prospects. And I mentioned that the Red Sox had set the market with the Kimbrel trade, which they did. I mean, you can't dispute that. They set the market for trading uh, for stud relief pitching, for elite relief pitching. And they gave up four prospects. They didn't give up any major league players. They gave up four prospects, none of which were top three. So... You know, if you look at the rankings for what the Red Sox prospect system had, um, Manuel Margot as number four, right? So, I mean, you gave up four prospects, and 
You also, you look at Chapman versus Kimbrell. Kimbrell's under contract for a couple of years. Chapman is not under contract as long as Kimbrell. And also, if you line him up against the wall, I would hope that you'd take Kimbrell over Chapman. At least I would. And I, it wouldn't even be a question. It's not a knock on Chapman. It's a praise to Kimbrell. But you take all those things into consideration when you talk about what the market is now for trading for someone like Araldus Chapman. And if you're a team out there that's shopping, you know, a reliever, or if you're a team that's buying a reliever, let me, let me step into the shoes of a GM or a team that wants to go out and, and trade and acquire an elite relief pitcher, or really any, any relief pitcher. Basically, what you're saying to the team that is trying to trade their pitcher, you're saying, well, the market was set. Like, we're not giving up more than, than what the Red Sox gave the Padres. That's not going to happen. So the Reds, the Cincinnati Reds were never going to get that. They weren't. But you're now starting to hear some things as to why maybe the deal with the Dodgers for two prospects isn't going to work out, and it's, it's possibly, the deal is possibly dead because Araldis Chapman, there are some do- domestic violence issues that have been going on in his personal life. And, uh, y- you know, there are some details that are coming out now, you know, he hit his girlfriend and he pushed her or whatever it may be. It's domestic violence. And if you're a team that is going to acquire somebody like Araldis Chapman and you're going to have to give up a lot to get him, even if you have to give up two prospects, it's still, you know, it's, again, it's not as much as the Red Sox gave up because I think that the Red Sox set the market. But at the same time, you're looking at this, if you're the Dodgers going, wait a minute. We don't, we don't want that, but at the same time, we're hearing reports that the Red Sox might have backed off of Araldis Chapman when they heard about some of these issues. Now, I don't know how true those reports are. I think it's easy to say now, if you're, if you're the Red Sox, to say, well, you know, that's why we went after Kimbrell, but I, I don't even know why you would do that. Like, I don't even know why you would say that to someone, to a reporter, to the media, because you got the better guy anyways. You know, regardless of what issues are going on in their personal lives, respectively, you got the better pitcher, in my opinion, in Kimbrell. So forget about the Red Sox and Chapman for a minute. The deal that was made was the Dodgers were sending two prospects to Cincinnati to get Araldis Chapman. And now the deal looks like it is going to fall through because of the domestic violence issues that are now becoming public. Again, I say becoming public. I don't know if the Dodgers was, were they still going to make the deal? I don't, I don't think we know enough about what the Dodgers knew at the time, but what we do know is that now we're hearing that this deal might not happen. So we'll keep an eye on that, on the Chapman deal and the Chapman trade to LA. I, I, I'm not sure if they're going to go through with it or not. We'll wait and see. But there was a trade yesterday that was made, bringing it back here locally to the Red Sox. That was an awesome deal for the Red Sox. Like Dave Dombrowski, he's come to the Red Sox and he has not been afraid to make moves. And not only did he trade four prospects to get Craig Kimbrell, as I just mentioned, and I love that deal, but he went out and spent big money, $217 million over seven years on David Price, a stud starting pitcher that this organization so desperately needed. And now, in the early days of the winter meetings, Dave Dombrowski, yesterday, this happened moments, moments after I released yesterday's podcast. Because I began yesterday's podcast saying, look at this breaking news. Dave Dombrowski is possibly going to ship either Wade Miley or Clay Buckholtz to the Seattle Mariners. 
and there were some other teams there, right, that we were talking about possibly. Maybe the Texas Rangers were involved in something. Um, there were moves to be made, and we were hearing reports, and I said, yes, make them, make them, make them. And my initial reaction when I heard that they were discussing these things was, all right, Dave Dombrowski is trying to get some pieces to maybe even add to another potential package to get a stud starting pitcher. And as you know, I'm not opposed to that. In fact, I am pushing for that. I think the Red Sox still have the pieces to make a trade, a blockbuster trade, to get another starter. I really do. And we'll get to that because there's a couple names that are out there that possibly could be moved either at the winter meetings or you could kickstart trade talks at the winter meetings and finalize something either before Christmas or after Christmas. Um, Here's the deal. The Red Sox yesterday, they trade Wade Miley and reliever Jonathan Aro for 26-year-old righty reliever Carson Smith and 27-year-old lefty starter Rowenis Ilias. All right? So you get Carson Smith and Rowenis Ilias. But really, Carson Smith is the guy here. He's the guy. That's the guy that you wanted. That's the guy that you targeted. That's the guy that you're getting. Carson Smith, again, 26 years old. He is, you have him under control for a long time, all right? And last year in his full major league season, he played in 70 games, pitched 70 innings as, a again, a righty reliever. You know, turns out to be a guy that's in there closing games for Seattle. He had 13 saves, but he had a 2.31 ERA, 92 strikeouts, as opposed to 22 walks. I'll talk about his stuff first. When you look at Carson Smith's stuff, he has a fastball in the mid-90s to go along with a nasty slider in the mid-80s. That is down and away to right-handed hitters. That is downright dirty when you put it together with his fastball in the mid-90s. So he has power stuff with a nice little slider to right-handed hitters. And on top of that, here's a little stat for you. Carson Smith last year became the first American League reliever with at least 90 strikeouts and a ground ball rate of 65% or better since 1987. Let me read you it again. Carson Smith became the first AL reliever with at least 90 strikeouts and a ground ball rate of 65% or better since 1987. That's what he did last year. He is now coming to the Red Sox. You hear quotes from GMs all over the league really applauding what Dave Dombrowski has been able to do with this trade. And you send a guy out in Wade Miley who in his one year with the Red Sox last year. Now, don't forget, Ben Sherrington last offseason traded for Wade Miley, got Wade Miley from the Arizona Diamondbacks, and he sent them Ruby De La Rosa and Alan Webster. And I looked at a guy like De La Rosa, and I said, I think that, you know, you could have packaged these kids with a couple other pieces to maybe sweeten the pot for even a better trade than Wade Miley. I said it at the time, and when you watch him pitch this season, you know, there were times where you felt most comfortable with him out of anybody on this staff, but it's, again, doesn't have overpowering stuff, and... His ERA ended up at 4.46 with a 500 record at 11 and 11. Don't look at the record. Look at the ERA, 4.46. But also look at the guy. Wade Miley could have come out last year and won the Cy Young. He could have turned it on, turned into the best pitcher in baseball. Now, you know that wasn't going to happen, all right? But let's just theoretically say, what if that happened? 
even if that did happen, right, the one moment I would never be able to get out of my head with Wade Miley is that game in Baltimore on June 11th, mid-June, you know, you're a Red Sox team that, what were they, close to 10 games under 500? Uh, you were struggling the first couple months to do both pitch and hit in the same month, right? You couldn't do it for the first two months. You couldn't combine both things. You get to June. Uh, you go to Baltimore. Four innings for Wade Miley. Allowed nine hits. Allowed five earned runs. Three home runs in four innings. Again, let me read you that line. Four innings, nine hits, five runs, three home runs. Wade Miley comes into the dugout after the fourth inning. John Farrell tells him his day is over. He just set up a, a, a solo home run in that fourth inning. Wade Miley snapped. He lost his shit. He flipped out. And he showed up to manager John Farrell. And I will never forget that because Wade Miley came off to me like one of the biggest fucking clowns I have ever seen in my entire life. For a season that was going so bad, so early, for this Red Sox club that was begging their starting pitching, that was begging their starting pitching to be this rotation that lived up to what, you know, the hype that they created in the offseason, the hype that they created in spring training when they walked around with T-shirts that said, I'm the ace, you're the ace, he's the ace, who's the ace? Whatever the fuck t-shirts they were wearing, they said the word ace, and they didn't like the fact that we all sat there, that I sat behind a mic, that I wrote in a column, not just me, I'm saying uh, us, as people who do this type of stuff, you know, talking about this rotation, saying, hey, they're no good, they're no good, or at least they're going to need a whole lot of offense to go with what they can give you to become a playoff team. Now, in fairness to all this, I told you that the offense would be so good that the pitching wouldn't be as bad as it... I didn't think this rotation would be as bad as it was. I never thought it would be great. I never thought anybody was going to jump out and become that ace. But I thought as a group, they could come together and be good enough with a much improved offense to put themselves in position for a playoff race where they then, at the deadline, would have traded for a stud pitcher and got into the playoffs. And I, I predicted them to get into the playoffs under that, you know, that route. That's the route they were going to take. But the starting pitching was so bad. It was terrible. And if it wasn't for Eduardo Rodriguez to come up and give him some uh, some positive starts, again, even though he did that, they still stayed in the basement. But, but we're talking, let's get back to Wade Miley. He has this night in June, on June 11th, and I will never forget him for that. I'll, I'll always remember him for that moment. For showing up John Farrell, you thought he had pitched seven shutout innings and had just struck out the side, and Farrell was pulling him after he threw 100 pitches and said, hey, I feel more comfortable you know, going to the bullpen now. You threw 100 pitches. I could see maybe the velocity coming down. And Wade Miley wants to flip out there. Eh, I, I think I can accept it a little bit more than what it actually was because what it actually was was Wade Miley being so out of line I've never seen anything like it. I, 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 like, how stupid do you have to be to sit, to stand there and to show up your manager on a ball club that sucks and you just shit the bed? But still, you want to go back out? Here's how you go back out. 
Don't let up three home runs in a game. Okay? Don't let up nine hits. Don't let up five earned runs. I don't care who you want to blame in the outfield. Go out and make something happen for yourself. How about some accountability instead of showing up to manager after four innings in which you sucked? That is Wade Miley's Red Sox career in a nutshell to me. So I will never forget that. Every time that I see Wade Miley, hear his name, or look at his stats, I am always going to think to that night in June in Baltimore in which he looked like a complete and utter jerk-off. All right? So my message to him is, don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out, Wade. See you later. I mean, goodbye. There's, there's no room for that. All right? Accountability is something that when this Red Sox team in the last five, six years, when they've been bad, there's been no accountability. I mean, there, there have been so many ridiculous, embarrassing quotes and stories that have come out of that, out of that dugout, out of that organization, that just that ooze lack of accountability. It's not even funny. And the Wade Miley thing, I mean, you, who does Wade Miley think he is? That's all, I could, that's all I could react to that with and say at that moment. And I'll never forget that. And I told you when they traded for Wade Miley, I didn't like it. And when he was here, and even when it looked like he was pitching well, I just didn't see it with him. He did, again, if you wanted to move him, be my guest. And they moved him for a guy. And again, the guy they get here that, that is the one that you wanted. And this isn't a knock to... Rowan S. Elias, but Carson Smith is the guy. Now, they get Carson Smith. And you look at the Red Sox bullpen and you say, hey, Dave Dombrowski's come in. The bullpen needed fixing just as much as the rotation did for this Red Sox team. It did. But uh, if I told you that Dave Dombrowski with all these GMs, you know, they, it's funny because you hear all these GMs and they're, they're, they're just applauding the Red Sox, Right? Oh, Dave Dombrowski, he's got, how did he get Carson Smith for Wade Miley? It's a great deal. I agree with him. It's a great deal. But when I keep hearing these GMs talk about it, well, something just clicks with me. And I think to myself, is this it? Is that it? I mean, if it is, you know, I, I, look, I think Carson Smith is a, a very good young power arm in that bullpen that you are going to have now in your organization for the next what, four or five years you have him. And, you know, he's going to be somebody that, that you're going to rely on in big spots next season and beyond. And I'm fine with that. You need a player like that. But you still, in my opinion, need another top dog starting pitcher. You do. You need another one. How do you get it? You get it you're gonna, if you're going to get it, you're going to get it in the trade. You are. And now that we have the winter meetings and everybody's talking and everybody seems to love Carson Smith, I don't know. Is he, is he staying? I guess that's my first question. Does he stay? Are you keeping him? I, that's a serious question I think you should ask. Are you keeping him? Or are you adding him to a package to go out and get a starting pitcher? Another one. And really just because, look, I, I tell you what, I, I wouldn't be against it. I like Carson Smith. I like what he's got. I think if he stays here, the Red Sox, it'll be a great move for him because you traded Wade Miley and got, and got his 
terrible stuff out of the organization, fine. I'm, I'm good with that. But you know what I think this team needs more than anything is that number two starter. Look at the postseason. Look at it. Look at every team in the postseason. They had two top dog starting pitches. That's what they had. Two top dog starting pitches. You need more than one. Now, you look at what the Red Sox have right now, and perhaps when you get to that trade deadline, you could make the move then for someone. I, I don't rule that out. But while you're down there at the winter meetings, and Dave Dombrowski, it seems like he's getting nuts a little bit, and I'm okay with that. I want him to get nuts. They make a move like this yesterday. I, I guess I just asked myself, is this a move that the Red Sox keep the players they get? They keep Carson Smith? Or is this the first shoe to drop in a blockbuster trade for a starting pitcher? Because there are some available. And if teams are saying those guys aren't available, I keep telling you, you make them available. And uh, as much as I keep hearing these GMs just rave about Carson Smith, well, the Red Sox have him. They could keep him, or they could add him to a package and send him somewhere else. Now, a name that is all over the place today. On this Tuesday, December 8th, 2015, is a name that I've brought up many times over the last couple weeks. No, it's not Sonny Gray, even though I haven't heard Sonny Gray's name. And it just makes me think that, well, when you don't, sometimes when you don't hear a guy's name, I'm, I'm under the impression that something's going on behind the scenes. Maybe I'm just being crazy. Maybe not. But the name we're hearing is Jose Fernandez. Yesterday we heard the Marlins on trading him. Then we heard that the Marlins want six very good young players for him. Look, of course, it's a nego- if you get into conversation with the Marlins for Jose Fernandez, all right, it's, it's a negotiation. Of course the Marlins are going to ask for six. They're probably only going to get four. All right, they're going to ask for six. A team's going to offer three. And the Marlins will say, well, you know what? No. And a team, the team will say, well, all right, we'll throw this guy in. And they'll say, yeah, maybe give us another. And be like, nope, we're cutting it off at these four. You want to make this move? You don't want to deal with Scott Boris. You don't want to deal with Jose Fernandez. We'll take him in his next three seasons of arbitration eligibility because that's what he's got. You'll have him under control for three more seasons. What's he, 23, 24 years old? I mean, just coming off of Tommy John? And, and I don't look at that as a concern. I, don't, I look at that as a good thing. I get it out of the way. He returned from Tommy John last year throwing harder than he did before he went down. So Jose Fernandez is an absolute stud. And I would be willing to make a major move for him. There's a couple other pitches I would too. Like a Sonny Gray, like a Chris Sale. But there's also another name that's out there. Shelby Miller. Interesting name. Atlanta Braves. We know they already traded their big money shortstop, Andrelton Simmons, and they got prospects in return, prospect pitching. They say a couple of those pitches are Major League ready right now. We'll probably begin the season with the Braves in spring training in the, ro- the Major League rotation. Shelby Miller. Interesting story here because they're saying he could get dealt. And, I mean, he's under control for the next couple of years. He's 25 years old. He turns 26, he just turned 25 in October. And in his third full season last year, he made 33 starts with Atlanta. He was with St. Louis the previous two seasons. 33 starts with the Atlanta Braves last year. He finished with a 3.02 ERA, a career best. 
171 strikeouts, walked 73. He's got power stuff. He throws a fastball in the mid-90s, 95, can get it up to 96 if he dials it up, 96. I've seen it, 97, mostly around 95. And he's got a nice little slider and a changeup to go with it. Slider to righties, changeup that cuts a little bit away in in the mid-80s from from lefties. Shelby Miller, at 25 years old, I think to put him in the category of a Jose Fernandez, a Sonny Gray, or Chris Sale is a little crazy. I don't I don't put them I don't put Shelby Miller in the in that category. But what I do put him in is the category that I think is one or two seasons away from being put into that category. So if you could get Shelby Miller on the cheap, and I don't, I don't know if it's going to be on the cheap because what we're hearing is that Atlanta wants major league ready bats. We've already talked about Atlanta. We talked about Freddie Freeman, first baseman, making some big money, heavily backloaded contract. We know Atlanta's shedding salary right now. If you could possibly talk to the Atlanta Braves about a deal that would get you Shelby Miller and Freddie Freeman, and you could give them Major League Ready Bats, I mean, what are we talking about here? We talking about Swihot? We talking about Hanley Ramirez? Like, where are we going here with Major League Ready Bats? Put it this way. If Atlanta wants to talk, and they're going to throw names like Shelby Miller and Freddie Freeman out there, the Red Sox should be talking to them. That's all I'm going to say. They should be. And even though the Jose Fernandez stuff and the news with him is that there is a mystery team that looks like they may be going all in on Jose Fernandez. I love all the I love the report too, by the way. Unidentified fourth team, a mystery team, enters the trade talks for the Marlins Jose Fernandez. But then in the report, in the first paragraph, they say they people believe the mystery team is the Houston Astros. <laughs> well, is it a mystery team if we're gonna if we know the name of the team? I, what are we doing? Are we going mystery team or are we going Houston Astros? Because it can't be both, can it? If I hear mystery team, I can't hear the team in the opening paragraph. That's that's not a mystery. That's kind of a known thing. Uh who knows where Jose Fernandez goes? You got to keep in mind that he's a Boris guy. You got to keep in mind that Boris wants to pitch count on him. I, I, I'm willing to make the major move. The Marlins are asking for a king's ransom right now. But what did you think you were going to have to give up to get Jose Fernandez? Honestly, did you think that it would you'd give up Jackie Bradley Jr. and Travis Shaw to get Jose Fernandez? I mean, what did you think you would have to get give up to to get him? You have to give up a lot. And all I'm saying is get into the conversation and see where you're at and see what you can do and see what they want. And then you can talk and then you can negotiate. And if you think they're going to make a move and you think you can one-up that other team, you jump in at the last minute. That that shit goes on all the time. But you got to be involved in Jose Fernandez, certainly. But if Atlanta's dealing maybe Shelby Miller and you can get him for much cheaper... Well, and you say, hey, you save some prospects maybe that you can move at the deadline for another pitcher? 
I tell you what, you got to think about the Shelby Miller thing maybe a little bit more seriously. You do. So we'll see where, where you go from there. But I, it just all this stuff plays into my theory that there are stud starting pitches available. There are big-name starting pitches available to be had in a trade, even ones that we're not talking about today. Shelby Miller, um, Jose Fernandez. I tell you what, I still think that if you want Sonny Gray, you can go get him. You'll have to give up a King's Ransom for him, too. But, I mean, why wouldn't you want to do that? I would prefer Gray over Fernandez only because um, the fact that Sonny Gray this year is still making the major league minimum, right? But you get Chris Sale as well. We've heard rumors that there are are pitches to be had, and the Red Sox have pieces to trade. Like, there's another report. Christian Vasquez, Red Sox catcher. They're saying reports have him to be fully recovered from Tommy John by the start of the season. You have Ryan Hannigan, right? What do you do with Blake Swihart? 23-year-old kid, 24-year-old kid. Offensive catcher, young, once was one of the top prospects in this organization. I know people take the word prospect uh, off of the way they describe him when he goes to the major leagues, but I still kind of consider him a prospect. Uh, But where are these guys going to play? To me, I think that if I'm Dave Dombrowski, Blake Swihart is getting shopped for a starting pitcher. And... If there's a package that surrounds a Blake Swihart, if he's as good as everybody keeps trying to tell me he is, right, then I think that's some pretty high trade value. And that would get a team to say, hmm, and you know what? We're getting away from maybe he's not just a catcher. Maybe he can play first base if a team already has a catcher, right? You're getting into that stuff too. So don't don't rule that out. And I just look at, again, Henry Owens. Brian Johnson, you still got your top three prospects there. You just, Jackie Bradley Jr., would you entertain moving him? I mean, you got things you can do. Travis Shaw, there are pieces here that you can move and get creative that are pretty big trade chips. And I think you could get another team to listen for a starting pitcher. So we'll keep an eye on it, but those are the names that are out there right now. And um, look, I'd love to see the Red Sox in on Jose Fernandez, but if you're telling me you can get Shelby Miller for a whole lot cheaper, well, he's 25 years old. He's under control for a couple years. I'm fine with that, too. Go for that. And if you're talking to Atlanta about Shelby Miller and they want Major League Ready Hidden and they're going to free up some some more salary, you tell them, we'll take Freddie Freeman off your hands as well. And, uh, yeah, well, you want Hidden? Hey, Hanley? How about Hanley? Want a young kid? Maybe you can play first? How about Blake Swihart? I mean, I'm just throwing out names here. But you, these are things that you got to do. And I think, I think, you get, I think you get Atlanta talking. If you're talking about a blockbuster, Shelby Miller and Freddie Freeman. I mean, I'd be all in for that, for that type of deal. I would. So, uh, again, that's just me thinking out loud. Shelby Miller's in the news. Freddie Freeman was in the news a couple weeks ago. That's kind of quieted down. I don't care what any team says when they come out and say, this guy's not available, that guy's not available. Bullshit. You prove to me he's not available because I'm about to give you this package. I'm about to give you this guy, that guy, and the other guy. 
You got these guys that you could possibly take off my hands this winter. You're telling me he's still unavailable? You can make trade offers that make somebody available. You can. You can do it. It happens every year. And the Red Sox have pieces that I think would open the eyes of other Major League clubs, GMs, and would would make sure that they don't hang up the phone on the Boston Red Sox or on Dave Dombrowski if you come calling. That's it. So, I think it's going to be interesting. I don't think Dombrowski's done. We'll keep an eye on it, and we shall wait and see. But the news, the official, Wade Miley is out. Good riddance. And Carson Smith is in. If he stays, it's going to be great for this team. If he's put in a package to get a stud starting pitcher, it's going to be great for this team. Either way, great move from Dombrowski yesterday. And uh, he's having a great offseason. Great offseason. Smith signed David Price. Traded for Craig Kimbrell. One of the best, if not the best, closes in baseball. And I, I still think there's more to come. I do. I do. We'll wait and see. But uh, to wrap up the show here on this Tuesday, December 8th, just a couple quick thoughts. The Celtics win last night, and uh, the Spurs, they whooped the 76ers without Duncan, without Kawhi Leonard, without Manu Ginobili, and they didn't just beat the 76ers. They beat the 76ers by a score. By the way, in Philly, they beat the 76ers 119-68. to 119 to 68. Now, for all the people that get their panties in a bunch when they blame Popovich and say, oh, he's resting his starters, like his starters need to, they need to, especially when they go on the road, people pay big money for tickets to, to come and show up and see guys like Duncan, to, to see guys like Ginobili or Kawhi Leonard. And what Popovich does is he gives his, some of his top players nights off. It's what he does. People around the league sometimes don't like it. But you know what's not helping their argument? Is when San Antonio sits Duncan, sits Ginobili, sits Kawhi Leonard, and they still go on the road and beat a team as bad as they might be with, with a 1-21 record. That's the 76ers record. When the Spurs go on the road and beat a team 119-68 to without some of their top dogs, you can't sit here and argue about it. You can't. The Spurs now 18-4 and four on the season. So there's some NBA news. And uh, NHL, the Bruins lose last, last night. Kevin Miller falls on the ground during the game winner. I'm also not sure what the other defenseman, Joe Morrow, was, was doing on that play either. Uh, but the Bruins lose on that play. They come home from a road trip and they lose... One thing that is great, one moment in this game last night, James Neal, if you know him, you probably hate him unless you're a fan of the Nashville Predators or a fan of a team that he's, that, that James Neal's been on. But James Neal, I mean, you, you, it's just, you cringe when you say his name, right? Well, last night he embellished something, and the officials kind of kept their mic on during this play, kind of kept their mic on when they called James Neal for embellishment. And I'll let you listen first, and if you can't hear it, I'll tell you what he said afterwards. Here's the official, what he was saying to James Neal as he calls him for the embellishment penalty. Fuck you, you're getting the fucking 
again, I'll play it one more time. Here's what the official says to James Neal after he calls him for the embellishment penalty. Fuck you, you mean the fucking embellishment. And if you can't understand what he's saying, he says, fuck you, you're getting a fucking embellishment. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And he's not just saying it, he's yelling it. And it is great. It is great. He is not getting bitched around, that official. So, um... It was a, that was one good moment last night in the game, even though the Bruins lose. And uh, finally, Ronda Rousey is speaking. She's talking. It's a big story uh, in the world of MMA, in the fighting world. We got a big fight this weekend on Saturday night, McGregor versus Aldo. So I'll talk about that and react to that next week. But with that in kind of everybody waiting for that fight this weekend, in the UFC, Ronda Rousey, who got knocked out by Holly Holm not too long ago, uh, she sort of, I don't want to say went into hiding, but kind of fell off the face of the earth because Rousey was this big name that nobody could beat, that was untouchable, and you know she was promoted everywhere because she was untouchable. Then she gets kicked in the face, and she loses, and she talked yesterday, and, well, she, the, the story's out today, it's... Really, what I don't think anybody should be shocked by this. She's going to fight Holly Holm again. There's going to be a rematch. So, it's really no... I wasn't really shocked with anything. She does go into talking about how she got hit early in that fight, and she she just wasn't the same. She just didn't feel right. And she was kind of slow in her game plan and her execution because of that, and it affected her. The, the shot that she took early in that fight, and then you could tell, when she gets up from her corner to begin that second round, and she starts walking, she was stumbling. Like, she didn't, it, it was almost like she didn't know where she was. She kind of acknowledged that in this story, but nothing really too shocking. Ronda Rousey speaks. She will fight Holly Holm again. And um, if she wins that, there'll be a third. I'm sure. I'm sure there'll be a third, but she's going to win that first. But plenty of time uh, until we see that fight. The next biggest fight, as I mentioned, is Aldo McGregor this weekend in the UFC. Uh, so tomorrow I will preview week 14 in the NFL, talk about every game, uh, talk about the playoff implications as we get closer to the playoffs and any other news that breaks in the Major League Baseball winter meetings. I will react to it right here on this show five days a week. DannyPicard.com, also on iTunes, TuneIn, the Stitcher app, anywhere really that podcast are available. You can get this show. Follow me on Twitter at Danny Picard. Like my Facebook page, facebook.com slash the Danny Picard show. I am out. Talk to you tomorrow.